Many people today realize there's something going on in the world. Things are not quite right. They're not sure where things are going to go. But what they don't recognize, for the most part, is the prophetic significance of what's happening. The prophetic significance of what is happening in the world and in the news today. As we saw the British vote to leave the EU, this is something we have been looking for and talking about for, for decades, literally, based on prophecies about a beast power rising in Europe that would be made up of 10 nations, not 28 nations. And this appears to be moving in that direction. You know, the European leaders may take advantage of the opportunity provided by a crisis, I'm trying to remember, I read this in a book not too long ago. I think it's a book on Germany. And they were talking about the leaders of the EU. And they said they don't, they never want to let a crisis go to waste. They never want to let a crisis go to waste. And they will take advantage of opportunities. I remember one of the German leaders some time ago, he said, Europe is like riding a bicycle. We have to keep it moving. If you stop it moving, it will fall over. So the leaders of Europe are going to push. Um, they're talking about uh, pushing uh, a, a, a deeper political union, uh, creating a, an army that will be made up of all the other countries, and eliminating the barriers between nations, eliminating borders. They've been talking about this for some time. Nationalism is something we need to get rid of. Now, this is also going to push some people and some nations out that don't want to go along that way. So we need to be watching for 10 nations, not 28, not 27, but 10 nations, because these things are going to be prophetically significant. The world doesn't understand that. They recognize something's happening, but they don't understand what is happening. But we've been predicting these things for quite some time. But there's another series of prophetic events that I wanted to mention here at the beginning of the sermon. And this is what's happening in our country. It's what's happening in other Western so-called Christian nations. And that is biblical values are increasingly under attack. Increasingly under attack. You know, today in our countries, and again, countries that were especially America, that was founded on biblical principles. It was a nation that was founded on religious liberty. We want to be able to believe whatever we want to believe. And yet today, God is mocked by unbelievers in schools and universities, in the media. The Bible is doubted and ridiculed by skeptics and critics. Lying, stealing, murder... Gambling, disrespect for authority are rampant in our societies today. Marriage is being redefined. Now, you're familiar with these things, but this is what's happening when you look at the big picture. Marriage is being redefined. Adultery, fornication, abortion are widespread. Homosexuality, same-sex marriage that the Bible talks about as being abominations are being promoted by administrations today, being promoted by academics today and promoted in some, even uh, Protestant religious organizations are promoting these things. 
You know, people who are trying to follow biblical values, whether they're true Christians or professing Christians, are being ridiculed, intimidated, arrested, and being thrown in jail for merely trying to hold on to biblical values. You know, I mentioned before, I've got a book at home entitled The Criminalization of Christianity. The criminalization of Christianity in America, where we say on our coins, in God we trust. I think in Canada, they've had ministers up there being thrown in jail because they would not promote or they spoke out against uh, homosexuality. Now, this is happening, for example, in America and in Britain and other places where in the past we named our children with biblical names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, Esther, Deborah, Mary. We sing songs about God bless America. In England they talk about God bless the king or God bless the queen. Yet all this is being pushed aside today by modern progressive secular agendas that view religion and especially Christianity as outdated, narrow-minded, bigoted, and dangerous. This is what's happening in countries that were once, quote-unquote, Christian countries. But here again, we're watching Bible prophecy come to pass in these events. I'd like you to turn just to a couple of scriptures. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, God has spoken to Moses, and Moses was leaving a message for the Israelites. It was written, recorded, it's there as a lesson in history. Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, Moses says, For I know that after my death you will become, talking about the Israelites, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil... Disasters, basically, will befall you in the latter days. Why? Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. You can go back to Leviticus 26, verses 14 and 15, where it talks about if you turn away, if you disobey my laws, God said, and if you despise my statutes... If you turn away, disobey, and despise my statutes, these curses are going to come upon you. And we're doing this today, and we're going to reap the consequences. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul was writing prophetically about what's going to be happening towards the end of the age. And we're watching these things happen. The world doesn't understand prophetically what is happening for the most part. But we do and we should. Paul mentions here 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through about 5. He says, but know this, that in the last days perilous or difficult or terrible times will come. For people, men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be focused on themselves. We talk about a me generation today. Lovers of money, very materialistic, boasters, proud, blasphemers, they're saying very negative things about God, about the Bible, about a Christian way of life. 
disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of what is good, traitors, heady, uh, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. You can buy these teachers today, or T-shirts, not teachers. <laughs> you buy these T-shirts that say, party tonight. You know, just party, party, party. And this is the world that we live in. And I think sometimes young people and even adults in the church think, well, I'm really missing out on something uh, by having to come to church. Yet uh, you're not missing out on a thing. There are consequences that come when people do whatever they want to do. But this is describing the world in which we live. But these things, brethren, affect us, but they're going to affect us even more. Notice what Jesus said. We go through these scriptures every year to Passover. But let's go back to uh, John chapter 15. Jesus was talking with his disciples the night before he was crucified. I remember watching, I think it was a Billy Graham film years ago where this husband and wife were converted, and the wife says something to her husband, you know, loving Jesus is just like having God in my back pocket. It's so wonderful. And yet when we read these words about Jesus Christ, that Jesus said or stated, he was talking about something a bit more serious. He was talking with his disciples, verse 16, 17, 18, and 19. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit. Brethren, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Where Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. Why are you here? Because you chose to be here or because God chose to call you? That's incredible. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. These things I command you that you love one another. We'll pick this up just a little bit later again. But then he says in verse 18, some very sobering things. If the world hates you, you did not. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Now he's talking to his disciples the night before he was crucified. The servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But these things will they do to you. For my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, he repeated this, John 16, verses 1 to 4. He's trying to prepare his disciples for things that would come. And we're watching some of these things happening today. You know, as to date, a lot of these things haven't happened to us within the church, but they're happening to people that claim to be Christians. These things have I spoken unto you, verse 1, that you should not be made to stumble. Don't, don't get rattled. They will put you out of synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he offers God 
that he's doing a service to God. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you these things to you. And finally, in John 16, verses 32 to 33, Verse 32, indeed, the hour is coming. In other words, coming in the future. And this happened to the apostles in the first century. But this is also looking ahead to what's going to be happening towards the end of the age. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, is now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials. You're going to have difficulties. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Let's look at one more scripture back in Matthew chapter 10. Christ warned his disciples on numerous occasions that if you choose to follow me, he's saying, your life is going to be very challenging. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, just to pick up the thought. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony, as a witness to them. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you're going to say, for it will be given to you. Down in verse 21, Now a brother will deliver up brother to death. And father, his child, and children will raise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake or because you bear my name. You know, people that are not even part of the church, if they stand up and say that homosexuality is bad, they can be arrested today. They can be mocked and ridiculed. And as the world begins to focus in on our message, the same thing is probably going to happen to us. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Let me just finish here in verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He that hangs on, he who doesn't leave go of the truth, the person that doesn't compromise, he who endures to the end will be saved. I've had a long introduction here. But what I want to talk about, brethren, has to do with this particular verse that we just read. This is not my scripture for the day. (laughs) But it is a point of takeoff. How do you endure to the end as a Christian? How do you endure to the end as a Christian in a world and in a society that is increasingly anti-Christian? How do you endure to the end? What are you going to do? How, what do you do? How will you do it? How can you increase your capacity to endure as a Christian in a world that is increasingly anti-Christian? The implication is going to be a challenge. It's not going to be easy. I want to cover three keys today on Christian endurance. Three keys on Christian endurance. Three ways to prepare 
for difficult times that the Bible indicates is going to come on people who profess to believe and profess to follow Jesus Christ. And one of the principles I want to build on is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. This will be a theme that will run through what I want to talk about this afternoon. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. It says, test all things or prove all things and hold fast to what is good. Examine what it is that you believe. Examine what it is that you're doing. You count the cost, but hang on to what is right and what is true. Hang on to what is right and what is true. But examine these things. Know where you stand. Know what it is that you believe. So I want to cover three keys of Christian endurance. The first one I want to talk about is that... uh, Christians need to know the leader of Christianity. They need to know Jesus Christ, who he is, who he was, because there are many people today, especially critics, who say he he never existed. He's a fictitious person. There's no evidence. This is the claim. This is the claim. Others will claim, well, we can't believe the Bible But we have to be able to deal with these things. I've got five points under this section on know the leader, know Jesus Christ. We need to be able to to identify. I think over the years we've talked about it. Mr. Armstrong picked this quote up um, someplace along the line. So the world talks about Jesus, but they don't believe Jesus. They talk about him as a person but they don't believe his message. I think sometimes maybe we haven't talked enough about (laughs) Jesus. Dr. Meredith's given several sermons on the real Jesus, but I've also had people tell me, uh, you guys don't talk much about Jesus. Uh, So we do need to talk about him. Point number one, Jesus was and is a historical person. Not hysterical, but historical person. Some claim today that he was a myth, uh, he's just a fictitious person, somebody made up the stories about him. But Jesus, he did exist, he's a historical person, and there's evidence to prove that. I'm going to look at a couple of scriptures quickly, and I would encourage you to maybe do your own study. But just notice the history that is woven into the four Gospels. Now, we're not going to go through all four Gospels. (laughs) We're going to look at a couple of points. Just notice the historical markers, the benchmarks that are there that you can prove and check up on these things. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Bethlehem is a real town. That's where he was born. It says, in the days of Herod the king. That was Herod the Great. Herod lived between, or ruled basically, between 37 B.C. and 4 B.C. 
So Jesus was born sometime in that time frame. It appears he was born just before Herod died, sometime just before 4 BC. So Matthew is giving you a time frame, a historical time frame in which Jesus was born. Okay, go to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We're just skipping through here, but there are plenty of historical markers. And you don't find these markers for Confucius. You don't find these markers for Muhammad. Uh, Jesus was a historical person. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, this is Herod the Great, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division or the course of Abijah. In other words, this was there are 24 courses that the priest would serve throughout a year. Abijah was the eighth course. So this would have taken place in about the fourth month. This was the time of the conception of John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus was conceived six months later. So using these figures, in fact, if you go on the Internet, put in course of Abijah, you can see some charts, and you can figure out when Jesus was born, when he was conceived, when he was born. He was born in the fall, not in Christmas time, but he was born in the fall, September, October, sometime around the feast. But here, Luke is giving you a historical benchmark to figure out when Jesus Christ was born. And he talks about historical people. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Again, Luke is quite detailed on uh, accounts that he records. So he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't making these things up. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It came to pass in the days of a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned between 27 and 4 B.C. So this was about that time that a decree went out. The census took place uh, while Quirinius was governing Syria. He was a historical person. He reigned between 51 B.C. and 21 A.D., so during that time period. So here are historical figures that uh, are cited in the Bible that lived at the time that Jesus was born. So we're talking about historical things. Another thing I think is quite interesting Remember, my dad talked with a minister one time that came to visit us whenever I was first coming into the church. And uh, he was kind of picking at the minister. My dad was into philosophy and things like that. He said, uh, you know, there's no proof outside the Bible that Jesus ever lived. And the minister didn't have a comeback because apparently that wasn't covered in class. But I got looking into Bible dictionaries and things like that, and Jesus is mentioned in historical sources outside the Bible. When the mention is just a couple, now you can find the same thing by putting in the name of the historian and Jesus, and you'll come up with these quotes. Flavius Josephus, a historian, Jewish historian, writing in the 90s A.D., he talks about James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. So here's Josephus talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who's called the Christ. As a reference by a contemporary or slightly contemporary historian. Another quote from Josephus, Antiquities. says, Now there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, 
for he was one who wrought surprising feats. In other words, he did miracles. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold, these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Again, critics like to say, well, we don't really know if this is authentic. But um, another source I came across, the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics by Geisler, Norman Geisler, who was out here at this uh, seminary on the south side of town. He quotes an Arab source that says pretty much the same thing. He quotes an Arab source. At this time, there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So it says pretty much the same thing. But here's a contemporary historian talking about Jesus Christ of the Bible. One other reference, Tacitus was a Roman historian for a century. He was not only a historian, he was a senator and a very gifted historian. He's talking about the fire in Rome and that some people blame Nero. And then breaking into his quote, this comes from the Annals, says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abomination called Christians. He blamed the Christians for the fire. Christus, a Latin form of Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, he was crucified, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. This would have been between 14 and 37 A.D., so the very lifetime of Christ. He suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, who reigned in Palestine 26 to 36 A.D., so again the time frame of the crucifixion, and a most mischievous, mischievous superstition, basically that Christ was resurrected from the dead. Thus checked for a moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of this evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular, including the Catholic Church. <laughs> but here you have a historian, a Roman historian, talking about Christus or Christ, uh, which basically fits with the biblical description. I put some copies of these quotes on the information table. But again, if you go to the Internet, just plug in Tacitus and Christ or plug in uh, Josephus and Jesus Christ, and you'll come up with these quotes. So for somebody to say that he never existed, this is all a myth, this is all stories, this is baloney. It's just not true. And we need to be able to handle critiques that come along because this can undermine people's faith. There's a lady that's been writing books. I think she's dead now. Uh, but she's written some books on knocking Jesus Christ. And one of the other, one of the other books was, Did Moses Exist? Uh, 
And some people read those books and say, oh, she's a wonderful writer and has, has so much documentation. She must really know what she's talking about. But if you read some of the critiques, they said she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's very anti-Christian. But Jesus is a historical person. He's real. He did exist. And this is something we need to understand and prove for yourselves. As I mentioned, prove all things and hold fast to what's right and true. But Jesus, number two, was not an ordinary person. He was not an ordinary person. His attributes were quite extraordinary. Notice a couple scriptures here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. And we can read the scripture, but then we have to go to some other scriptures to realize really what Matthew was saying. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 and Matthew's quoting Isaiah 7:14. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us." Okay? What he's saying is the name Emmanuel means God with us. Now what what does this really mean? Let's go to John chapter 1. And we look at what John has to say, we begin to we begin to really grasp what Matthew was talking about. Because that's a very powerful statement. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. It's talking about Jesus Christ, the spokesman, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now Matthew said that Emmanuel means God with us. But what John is saying is the word was with God. He was coexistent with God at the very beginning. And the word was God. He was a divine being. He was a divine being. He was with God. In other words, he had a pre-existence. He was alive before he came to earth. This is the person that established Christianity. This is the person that raised up the church of God. Verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, this God being became a human being, put on human flesh, because he had a purpose in coming to do that. He became a human being for a purpose. He became flesh. Now, Muhammad didn't do that. He didn't have a pre-existence. Buddha didn't have a pre-existence. Some think, might think he may have had. <laughs> but he didn't. They were human beings. Jesus Christ was a human being, but he'd been a God before that. John 17, verse 15. Again, talking in verse 5, 17, 5 talking about this pre-existence. Jesus Christ was a very unique individual. John 17 and verse 5. Again, it's an instructive prayer. He's praying before his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he's teaching at the same time. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was, before the world was created. I was there with you. So this is the person 
This is the person that we follow. John 20, verse 28. John says a number of things that give us an insight into the person of Jesus Christ. John 20, verse 28. This was after uh, Christ was resurrected. Uh, Thomas, who doubted, uh, Jesus said, look, come here and put your hand on my side and so on. Starting verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Look at the holes where the nails were. Reach your hand here. Put it on my side. Uh, Do not be unbelieving, but believe. In other words, I am the one who was crucified, and I'm alive now. But notice Thomas's response. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He was acknowledging Jesus was a divine being. He wasn't just a human being. He wasn't just a person. So this is the Jesus who became flesh to fulfill the plan of God. Number three talking about knowing the leader, knowing Jesus Christ. As a physical human being, Jesus had God-like qualities. Now, you're familiar with these things. You read through the scriptures. The New Testament talks about he, he changed water into wine. He healed sickness. He cast out demons. Notice what Matthew said in Matthew chapter 11, where John the Baptist had contacted Jesus Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 2. It says, When John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, in other words, ask him this question, Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah that was prophesied to come? Or should we look for somebody else? And notice Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John the things which you hear and see. Tell John the things that you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He's saying, tell John about the miracles that have been taking place. And if you go back and you check the uh, comments of Josephus and also Tacitus, it said this man did wonderful things. He was known for doing wonderful things, amazing things. Let's look at another scripture while we're here in Matthew, Matthew 14. Now, this is the Jesus that is the leader of Christianity the one who we're looking forward to serving for a thousand years in the coming kingdom of God. Matthew 14. Um, Let's start here in verse 23. It said, When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone. But the boat in which his disciples were in was now in the middle of the sea, Tossed by waves, and the wind was contrary. In other words, it was a storm blowing. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Now most human beings don't do that. 
It says he came walking on the water. When his disciples saw him walking, they said, ah, it's a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, being good cheer, don't be afraid. And, and Peter says, uh, look, if it's you, Lord, uh, command me to walk on the water to you. And Jesus says, come on. So he jumps out of the boat, starts walking on the water, and realizes, what am I doing? <laughs> and he began to sink. And Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? But notice in verse 32, 33, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It just stopped. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. Now you worship God. They worshipped him, saying, you truly are the son of God. You truly are the son of God. They came to realize that. That's why they were willing to die for what they believed. These stories about the disciples just made these things up. Why would they make up a story and then die instead of saying, well, I just made up the story and then they could live? That doesn't make sense. But they worshipped him, acknowledged him as the Son of God. One other section here in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, this is the Jesus that the Bible talks about. This is the Jesus that historians even talk about. Beginning verse 13, Jesus is talking with his disciples. He came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples. He's probing here. He wants to see where they are. I remember talking with an individual whenever I came back from England, and I said, so-and-so, where are you? The guy that I taught with at Ambassador College years ago. I said, where are you? He said, well, I'm not where I used to be. And one of his comments was, I don't believe Jesus was divine. I don't believe Jesus was divine. That's where he is today. It's sad. But Jesus was probing. He says, who do men say that I am? The son of, who do men say that I, the son of man, am. And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. But then he's probing again. But but who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that the prophets had been predicting for hundreds of years. The son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood. You didn't figure this out on your, on your own. God has revealed that to you. God has allowed you to see that. He's allowed you to understand that. Brethren, if you see that and you understand that, that's because God has opened your mind to be able to do that. And that's, that's something you never want to take for granted. You know, I think we talk about this periodically. When you first learn the truth, you try and share this with your wife, your husband, your aunt, your uncle, uh, your neighbors, and they think you're nuts. Because <laughs> they can't see what God has opened your mind to see. And that's an incredible blessing. This word here, blessed, means to be envied. To be envied are you. It's an incredible blessing. You can read other scriptures in Mark 2, verses 5 to 12, where he heals uh, and says, 
you know, I can, I can heal and I can forgive sins. They're both the same. And the Pharisees really took off on that. He's claiming to be God because he can forgive sins. Well, he was God. And he could forgive sins. Mark 9, and I think also Matthew 19, where Jesus goes up on the mountain with his disciples, he's transfigured. He's transformed. All of a sudden, his body begins to glow and radiate energy. It was a foretaste of what a spirit being is going to be like. He was giving his disciples a chance to see that. This is the Jesus who established Christianity. This is the Jesus who is leading the church today. He's alive. He's well. He's powerful. One final scripture. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Again, proving all things and holding fast to those things that are right and true. What is the evidence that we can look at? Paul is giving us that evidence here, a summary of it. He's talking about the resurrection, the fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. He was alive. People saw him. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you now stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you. For I delivered to you, first of all, and Paul is handling questions here about a resurrection, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's why he came as God and died for the sins of mankind. That he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren. Now, Paul could not write this and get away with this if these people were still alive. So that had called him on it. He knew they were there. He knew they were alive. So he could say things like this. But, you know, 2,000 years later, we can doubt this. Because we know so much more. No, we're, we're 2,000 years too late. He was seen by... Um, over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain present, or to the present, they're still alive, although some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me when he appeared to Paul. So these are things that we can hang your hat on, so to speak. These are nails that you can drive into the wall. These are proofs that you can nail down. Number four, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Bible prophecies about him that had been recorded in the scriptures for hundreds of years. There were no prophecies about Muhammad. There were no prophecies about Confucius. There were no prophecies about Buddha. But there were hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament preserved by the Jews that Jesus Christ would come and various things would be fulfilled. We don't have time to go through those this afternoon, but you can take any Bible handbook and look up Jesus Christ and prophecies about him, and you can come up with a whole list of these things. Again, this is totally unique in history. There's nothing like this about other religious leaders, but there's plenty about Jesus Christ. Number five, 
Jesus was sent this earth. And if you go through the book of John, look up the word sent. And John mentions he was sent to do this. He was sent to do that. He was sent to do something else. He came to this earth for a purpose. He just didn't show up. Well, I don't know why I'm here. No, he knew why he was here. John 3, verse 34. John 3 and verse 34. John is quite descriptive and filling in details about Jesus Christ. And the book of John is written very differently. It's much more theological than the other synoptic gospels. John 4 and verse 34, it says, Jesus said to them, my food, my meat, my mission, my focus is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, God sent me to do something and to finish his work. And we can read about that, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. I still remember when I first heard the gospel about a coming kingdom of God to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. I think it was on the Feast of Trumpets, first Feast of Trumpets I ever attended. And the minister went through just very briefly the meaning of each one of the holy days. And I remember after the service, this big tall deacon in front of me said, what did you think of that? I said, he just blew my mind. He just blew my mind. I've never heard anything like that. I had heard the kingdom of God was this warm, fuzzy feeling you get in your heart. But actually to be a kingdom on this earth, to reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years, to bring solutions to the people in this world, it's going to be an incredible opportunity. An incredible opportunity not to throw away. But he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Matthew 16 and verse 18. He came to raise up the church of God to start a church. And then he sent his disciples out. First first 12 and then 70 to spread this good news, to spread this information of the purpose for human life, what life is all about, that we can gain eternal life. Again, for young people, that may not be exciting. But for those of us that are getting older, it becomes quite exciting. (laughs) You wake up in the morning and you you can't quite get out of bed and you look in the mirror, you don't recognize who's staring out at you. (laughs) Eternal life begins to sound very different and much more exciting. But this was part of the gospel. He came to die for the sins of mankind. To die for the sins of mankind that we're seeing taking place today. In John 4 and verse 42, something else to focus on. Because I think the, the Protestant world especially today focuses on personal salvation. Well, God loves me. It's kind of all about me. Now, I want to be in heaven. But notice here why Jesus came. Verse 42 of John 4. It says, now when they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world, not just individuals, 
but the Savior of the world. John says the same thing, 1 John 4, verse 14. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14. So now we have seen and testify to that the Father has sent, notice the word again, John uses this a lot, he was sent, he sent, the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. This is for the Chinese, this is for the Filipinos, this is for the Africans, this is for uh, people in the Middle East that are part of ISIS right now. Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of mankind and become the Savior of the world. That's a big concept. This is the founder and leader of real biblical Christianity. So we have got to get to know and build a personal relationship with. So look at one other scripture back in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus here is kind of summarizing the essence of Christianity, biblical Christianity. It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But notice the cautionary note. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Now we come to church and we serve in various ways, parking cars and putting out food and uh, serving at socials and things like that. But notice what Jesus is saying here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and prays and whatever, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, who actually follows my instructions, who wants to do things the way I want them to be done. Many will say to me in that day when Christ returns, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Haven't we preached sermons? Haven't we cast out demons? You can see some of this on television, whether it's true or not. Uh, it remains to be seen. And done many wonderful things in your name. Haven't we served a lot? Haven't we been noticed? Haven't you noticed? And then Jesus said, I will declare unto them, I never knew you. We never talked much. You were too busy striving for a position. And serving was really not in your heart. Gaining a position was in your heart. You talked a good line but you weren't doing what you should have been doing. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we've got to get to know Jesus Christ, the one who gave up his glorified state to come to this earth, to take on human form, dwelt with human beings, learned to deal with human temptations. This is the God that we look to. This is the Jesus Christ that we've got to focus on. And so we need to talk about Jesus Christ from time to time, but also focus on his message. So key number one for enduring to the end was come to know the real Jesus Christ. Key number two is to follow the leader's instructions. To follow the leader's instructions. Turn to Acts 11. Acts 11. Verses 20 to 26. And you can read through all the verses there. We're not going to focus on all of them, but 
was talking about whenever uh, some of the disciples went up to Antioch and they were preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 20. So they were preaching about Jesus Christ, his teachings, his example, what happened in his life. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And they sent out Barnabas, uh, and he encouraged people that they should uh, continue with the Lord, verse 23. Verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to get Saul, Paul. Verse 26, and when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. In other words, they were teaching them the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They were called Christians because they not only believed in Jesus, they believed Jesus. They believed his message. Jesus told his disciples, let me just mention a couple of scriptures here. Matthew 4.19, when he began calling his disciples, he said, follow me. Follow me, follow my instructions, follow my example, and I'll make you fishers of men. Paul mentions this same thing in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1, where he says, imitate me, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. If we're going to become real Christians, we need to follow Jesus Christ. We need to follow the teachings that we find in the New Testament, a lot of Paul's writings. So what did Jesus teach? Let's go back to John again. John 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. A very simple statement, but he's talking about all ten. And when you link this with Matthew chapter 5, we're to keep those commandments in the letter and in the spirit. In the letter and in the spirit. It was wrong to kill people. It's also wrong to assassinate their character. To say negative things about them. To undermine them. That's just like murder. You know, a lot of people today would never think of killing somebody but they're not above uh, saying a few things behind closed doors and sometimes not behind closed doors. This is what we've got to do. If we love Christ, if we love God, we've got to keep his commandments. John 13, verses 34 and 35, or 33 and 34, 34 and 35 where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is agape. This is an unselfish, outgoing concern, where you care about people. You care about what you say so that it doesn't hurt people. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you should also love one another. And then he says, by this, this is the, this is the bottom line. This is how people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. Now, John doesn't stop there. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 
Same John, same subject, but he adds a few more things. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. It says, but Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. We can't be hating our brother. We can't be doing things negative or saying things negative. We've really got to do what God says to do. Matthew chapter 5, we're told that we should be a light to the world. Again, this is following Jesus' instructions. To be a light, to be an example, to be different. It's interesting, some of our brethren, some of you, some of us, that have worked outside the church, people begin to recognize you're different. You're different. They recognize we don't keep Christmas. They recognize we go to church on Saturday, not on Sunday. But they also recognize that we're not, we should not, be out running around partying and going to wild parties and doing crazy things like that. They recognize they should recognize that we're different. And that shouldn't be a bad thing. That shouldn't be a bad thing. And some people I've talked to, they say, you know, I'm going to have to ask off for the feast and, you know, I might lose my job. And some of my comments were have been, if you have been a good employer or employee, they'll probably not fire you because good employees are too hard to come by. They're too hard to come by. We had an older deacon up in Boston. He tried to retire three times. And they kept calling him back to work. Said, we can't get anybody that works as hard as you do. Please come back. (laughs) Don't retire. Because he had a work ethic. He said, a lot of the young guys I work with, they call in sick on Thursday. And then they show up uh, on, on Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, because they've had a rough weekend partying. And then they call in sick again on Thursday night. Can't come in from Friday. Employers are going to not keep people like that. But we're to let our light shine, to be a good example, to be different. And there's nothing wrong with being different if we can do it in a non-obnoxious way. (laughs) I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to be able to do that. I've got some other things I have to do. We don't have to shove things down people's throats. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Again, we're talking about following Jesus' instructions following the instructions that are given to Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Paul is talking here, and he's quoting the Old Testament. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Almighty God. As Christians, we've got to be willing to come out of this world, not to get involved with the same thing the world gets involved in. We need to realize we're not going to lose out. 
We're not going to lose out if you come out of this world as going off in a wrong direction. You're part of our challenge, Isaiah 58.1, is to cry aloud, spare not, and show my people their sins. Part of our job today is to show the world what is happening and explain that this is contrary to the laws of God, that things are happening in our society, and there will be consequences individually and nationally to nations that turn away from God and go in a wrong direction. And part of our job is to let them know out of love. I remember a joke that I think I've told here before that these two preachers were fishing by a a stream, and they heard a car coming, roaring down this road. And uh, they heard the brakes squeal, and all of a sudden the car went into the drink, went into the river. And the guy walked up and looked at the bridges out. So they heard another car coming. The guy scribbled, the preacher scribbled this sign, and he ran up and started waving it because he wanted to warn the guy that the bridge was out. And the car just waved him off, went right into the drink again. And he said, you know, I tried to warn them. The other preacher said, what would you put on the sign? He said, repent. <laughs> he said, why didn't you just read, stop the bridges out? But he was so much into his religion, he, he didn't understand that some people might not understand that. But part of our job is to show the world what's happening, the direction society is going, and what's going to happen. One final scripture here in Ephesians chapter 5. Again, Paul is talking about coming out of something. Ephesians chapter 5. Start in verse 8. He says, for you were once in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Now, I've read over this dozens of times, and I think, well, darkness, night, something like that. But Paul is talking about something much more. You were once in darkness, but now in light. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful to speak of those things which are done in secret, but all things are exposed, are manifest by the light, for whatever is manifest is light. Therefore, he says, wake up, you who are asleep. Arise from the dead, Christ will give you light. Again, this play on light and darkness here. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Understand, uh, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, this thing of light and darkness, we've talked about for a number of years, this book, The Marketing of Evil. This is what's happening in a world of darkness today. This is the darkness that Paul was talking about. And when you read the chapter headings in here, the selling of gay rights to America, uh, the selling of sex and rebellion to your children, multicultural madness, that all cultures are the same and all religions are okay and we're all equal. This is nonsense. 
This is nonsense. The family meltdown that we heard about in the sermonette, this is being promoted today. Well, no big deal. You know, if you can't get along, maybe your kids are better off if you just divorce. No, this is not good. Obsessed with sex, sabotaging our schools, presenting stuff in schools that is just not right, not true. But a whole series of these things are being promoted today. This is the darkness in the world that we live in. This author has published another book entitled The Snapping of the American Mind. The Snapping of the American Mind. We're we're going crazy. We're just buying into these things. But there's consequences. Another book we've talked about over the years, When Nations Die, America on the Brink, Ten Warning Signs of a Culture in Crisis. This guy's a historian, and he's writing about cultures. And he says, nations that have gone down the tubes, that have been assigned to the dustbin of history, are doing or have done what America is doing today. They understand what's happening. Again, this, this play on darkness, I've read over this numerous times. But I came across a book, actually Mr. Tyler, Bruce Tyler, recommended a book because he works in the, in the Asia-Pacific area. He came across a book a number of years ago written by an American who worked in the State Department. It's entitled Ways That Are Dark. Ways That Are Dark. The Truth About China. Now he's talking about the Asian mind, or we could say the mind in non-Christian cultures, because it's not just China. But there's examples in here of of their value system, that human life in China has not been worth very much. He gave an example of a boat that was, these were missionary stories. When the missionaries first went into China, they saw things. He described a situation where a boat was going down one of the rivers and the boat tipped over. It was carrying people and pigs. The people on the shore saw what was happening. They jumped in their little boats, paddled out, and started picking up the pigs. And the people that were trying to get into the boat, they hit them over the head with oars because they didn't value the people. They valued the pigs. Another missionary was in a little town one time, and uh, he heard people crying and wailing and saw this wagon coming along with people that had their hands nailed to the back of the wagon. And he was able to say, what's going on here? Well, an official had heard there was a thief in the town, so he arrested everybody, didn't have enough handcuffs. So he nailed their hands to the wagon. He says, I'm pretty sure we got the thief somewhere in that group. It also points out that within that particular society, They're very good at deception. They don't want to say, well, yes, I did it. Well, there was many uh, uh, factors involved. They don't want to say yes or no. They don't want to lose face. But this is not only in that culture. You study a little bit about Islam. An Islamic person doesn't have to tell you the truth if you're an infidel. This thing about truth, this thing about honesty is of value. 
that has been inculcated into our society. We talk about Abe Lincoln, how he didn't give a lady the right change and he walked a couple miles to give her back five cents or something like that. I mean, these are values that have been inculcated because our nation has been built to a large degree on biblical principles. You get into non-Christian nations and there are very different concepts of what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, and what is not acceptable. If you were a communist trying to take over a country, you could lie because the ends justify the means. If lying gets you into power, then lying's okay. But this is what happens when you get away from cultures that had a basis in the Bible. When this country was founded, the framers of the Constitution took many things out of the Bible. What was wrong in the Bible was wrong in our society at that time. But that's not the way it is today. See, if we follow the instructions of our leader, Jesus Christ, our societies are going to be very different. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, we've got to do the same thing. Turn to Matthew chapter, no, uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 again. 2 Corinthians, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 and 10. Again, these are, this is what Paul was promoting. This is what he was taught, what he was teaching. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you might want to jot in your notes there, Psalm 119, verse 172. Psalm 119, verse 172. All thy commandments are righteousness. So a righteous person is going to be striving to live by the laws of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkenness, revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We can't hope to be in the kingdom of God if we're not following the instructions of Jesus Christ. Okay, number three, we need to believe the leader. We need to remember the promises of the leader. And this could be another sermon all by itself. But Jesus Christ came with a message. that We've been given a special understanding of Bible prophecy, of the gospel, the plan of God. We've been called to recapture true values, Matthew 17, 11 because we're going to become teachers in the coming kingdom of God. This is why we want to recapture true values. We're going to be teaching people God's way of life. And this would be one of the reasons for taking some living university classes. They're not just for ministers. We've been called to become kings and priests to teach the world God's way of life. And if we can redeem the time, make the most of the time, to prepare for what's coming down the road. Revelation 5.10, we're going to become kings and priests. Again, I'd never heard that concept until I came into the church. Jesus Christ is coming back, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, as the prince of peace. He's going to show the world the way to peace. It doesn't come out of a gun barrel. 
It doesn't come from negotiations. It comes from teaching people to live by God's way of life. I would encourage you, brethren, to to think about what we've talked about here today, to endure the challenges that Jesus Christ talked about. I encourage you also to read 2 Timothy, the third, second, third, and fourth chapters, where Paul talks about enduring to the end. He makes a couple statements. I know whom I have believed. I know who my teachers were. I'm confident in what I believe because I've looked into these things. It's quite encouraging, quite exciting. Because Paul knew who his leader was. He knew who his leader was. He was following Jesus Christ. He had no doubts about that. He was following Jesus Christ's instructions and his example. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And he believed the gospel promises. He knew there was a crown waiting for him. It wasn't something theoretical. He said, I know it's there. You know, if we can focus on the same things that Paul was talking about, knowing Jesus Christ, following his example, believing in the promises, that's why Paul endured to the end. And we can do the same thing. If we follow these steps and remember these keys to Christian endurance, knowing the leader, following his instructions, and believing the promises that our leader, Jesus Christ, has set for us. So let's focus on those, brethren. Things will probably get difficult in the years just ahead, but we also have a very exciting future that we can be part of if we endure to the end.